And then he's won a, a number of awards for this, but he wrote a book that he had no paper, no pencil, but he had a mobile smartphone where he was. And he, you know, busted out this long book and it got international accolades. So we can do that now. Hello, Global Startup Tribe, and welcome to today's episode. We are in Peace Tech Lab, and I am joined by Samir Mansour, who is the founder and CEO at No Limit Gen and the co-founder at LiveSafe. Samir, thanks for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Why don't we just start off with a little bit more about No Limit Gen? I mean, it's a really interesting concept, and I really want to dive into this concept of building startups and innovation within the nonprofit and NGO space. So really glad to have you here. Let's dive into No Limit Gen and how that got started. Absolutely. So I was actually building another startup in Arlington, Virginia, when the Rohingya refugee crisis happened. I was about six or seven years into building that startup. It had actually grown from a little baby and it was now a teenager doing its own thing with a great market. It's a mobile safety and security app called LiveSafe. And uh, I was watching the TV when we saw the news break of a genocide taking place between Myanmar and Bangladesh in the Rohingya areas. And we were watching the news and over a million people had been displaced from the Rakhine province in Myanmar and 60% of them were children. And immediately I knew I wanted to do something. These children had done nothing to deserve any of this, yet they were, their lives were going to be transformed in the most radical of ways. And if we wanted them to have any meaningful chance of success, uh, it felt very important to me that I do something. And it, I was sitting on the couch wondering, what can I do? I've never worked with this population before. And I thought, what if I just started an online campaign? And all I want to do is create a space where we could protect these kids. So long story short, the campaign was successful. We found a, a really wonderful local partner on the ground called Jago Foundation focused on impoverished children's education. And we built this facility that attracted 500 genocide child survivors. And we wanted to focus on mental health. And one of the things we realized immediately was that the caregivers on the front lines, those that you expect might have training in child well-being, trauma relief, et cetera, given what all these children have gone through, they didn't have the training needed to show up to meet the challenges that these children were facing. And if we wanted to see these children not only survive, but rise and thrive into their full potential, we had to find a meaningful way to train them. And they kept saying, you know, we're not getting this training from the larger agencies that are coming here. And if we do get it, they're far and few in between. It's very expensive. We can't always make the trainings. We need a way where we can get the training where we are. And so that led to the creation of No Limit Gen, which is what if we found the world's leading child well-being experts? They're probably not going to be on the front lines of conflict, but they're probably going to be in you know, universities or, or clinics or, around the world. We can find them. We can film them where they are, create short, engaging digital videos. And based on whatever it is these caregivers and these children are facing on the front lines of conflict or vulnerable communities around the world, we can address these situations in these video shorts and almost have it feel like, these caregivers are having a cup of coffee with these professionals that they otherwise could not access. Mm. And so, what, I mean, what were the insights or what were the dots that you connected that no one else was seeing to kind of introduce this solution? Is there a large proliferation of, of mobile devices in, in these refugee camps? So what we saw was that the technology access had far outpaced kind of where the intervention model was at. The intervention model was still at a, a place where you're flying out trainers from you know, the United States, Europe, and you're spending all this money training on site. 
And these professionals are only able to be on site for a few weeks at a time. And they're also doing it in a way where they're not connecting with the language always because they're not able to speak the local languages or even it's not culturally specific. And so what we realized was there's an information gap here. There's not only information gap here, but there's a, a training gap in the sense that these caregivers or these professionals aren't going to be on the front lines forever. And so we needed to find a more accessible way to connect them with the frontline reality and also meet, um, the, bring in technologies to support these interventions. So, for example, what if we created a mobile app where these uh, refugee communities, migrant communities, or caregivers who wants to know how to better care for their children can access this app and find out exactly what to do in a certain situation, let's say a child uh, has been sexually abused. Unfortunately, um, vulnerable communities, children are far more likely to be abused in this way. Or, or what if a child is going through trauma and needs uh, specific healing? What, what do you do as a mother? What do you do as a teacher to address the situation in that moment? You can now pull up an app, which we have. It's, it's, it's a no-limit generation uh, app on the iTunes store which we're testing out right now, or you can go onto the platform and find out exactly what to do. And one of the other ways that we made our content accessible was we formed a partnership with Translators Without Borders. And then using local refugee populations, we translate and dubbed the content into those language. So they're now choosing words that matter to them. They're choosing cultural cues that matter to them. And it makes the content so much more engaging, so much more relevant. And as someone who was almost coming into this world of humanitarian intervention from the outs from outside of it it was almost mind-boggling to me why aren't we translating and dubbing more of the content if we're looking to address these challenges where these people are we have to do it starting with them and their needs and their language otherwise how do we expect to have sustainable change mm. in these refugee camps give us an idea of what the the penetration of technology looks like does everyone have a mobile phone are there are there computers that are it's like a computer cafe that everyone goes to like what what does the consumption look like sure so i'm most familiar with the rohingya refugee camps in, in in bangladesh and what we found in the rohingya refugee camps was that many of the caregivers or many of the adults had mobile smartphones you, you know all these people had lives before the the crisis hit and so they had their smartphones that they were doing business on or you know interacting with the world on and so when they were forced to flee in many cases you know they lost everything but their mobile smartphone was with them. So what we found is not everybody has it. Of course, these are very uh, these are communities that are, have been very deprived for for generations. But we would say that a large percentage of them did have mobile access, and they the only reason we noticed it was because many of them asked us for our content as an app. And this surprised me because we had originally created a, uh, a videos that could be shared on, you know, little mini drives or thumb drives that could be easily passed around. But they kept saying, hey, send us an app. We can access it. I don't know where they access the Wi-Fi because uh, technically it's shut down in the camps, but somehow they're accessing it. And so it's critical for us to meet them where they are because this is where the world is moving, right? We can't expect people to come to us, even if we're giving them great training, et cetera. One, that's expensive, but two, it's not practical. People on the move, you know, especially those who have lost their homes, you know, these, are, these people are working really hard to survive where they are. They can't always make that two-hour, three-hour journey to go through this training session. So it's critical that we find avenues to reach them where they are so that at least we can be effective and meaningful with our intervention. Right. And I think this is such an important conversation to have because in the startup world, we we fetishize the unicorn and the VC-backed billion-dollar company 
building that type of business is in my mind limited to a certain type of model and, and a certain type of temperament that's needed as a leader in order to in order to deal with the VCs, to deal with the customers, and, and to manage that whole ecosystem, which, which you had a lot of experience with, with LiveSafe. But what you're doing with No Limit Gen is you're applying the same innovation mindset to a completely different world. And there's so much impact to be had by just make, making the connection that you made of, like, they have these devices. We can introduce new information to these camps. And so I would love for you to kind of just expand on this concept and this opportunity of bringing more innovation into the nonprofit and NGO sector that, I mean, it do, that the model, it doesn't need, it's not necessary to raise billions of, or, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars to execute, you know? I think that's a really great question. And being in the uh, tech community here in the United States, you know, what I'm seeing is there's a lot of people who are in the tech community who are so talented, and it's almost like they want to build things that have meaning now. You know, the world doesn't need another dating app. You know, maybe it does, but there's many. I'm sure you can find one that'll meet your needs. Yeah. Uh, the world doesn't need another, you know, ad click revenue generator that's going to, you know, increase billions of dollars of, you know, in ad click sales. Yeah, you can't just say changing the world by X and, you know, right. changing the world. Yeah. If you find a great way to do that, great. Yeah. But what if we found other avenues to use technology for good, right? There's so many global problems out there and there's so many great entrepreneurs who are now looking into these challenges. And what I call this is, is the business of love. You know, it's, it's different than the business of the, every other entrepreneur who's looking to become a unicorn. The business of love is looking to transfer these skills that have shown to make highly scalable impact results in the commercial space and translating it into global impact projects around the world that can substantially increase the lives of their target populations. And so when I look at the business of love, this is, these are innovative concepts that are far more multiplying when it comes to generating social good around the world. And it's like one has a definite price tag. Yes, it has revenue generators, et cetera. So can this business of love, but we're prioritizing something that's far greater. And so if we go out into the world, for example, and we're through No Limit Generation, we're creating communities in which we are enabling children to rise and thrive. You know, imagine the impact and the toll that trauma takes on their lives. This is such that their physical health is going to be impacted. Their mental health is going to be impacted. These children, for example, they show early onset of mental health issues. Their life expectancy is decreased. They are far more prone to be drawn into criminalized elements or violent acts. They're far more likely to be victimized. So imagine not only the individual cost of that, but then imagine the collective cost of that to a society. So if you want to tie dollars to the business of love as well, we're not talking about millions of dollars. We're not talking about billions of dollars. Mental health is a trillion dollar issue that's confronting our world today because not only does it lead to extreme losses of productivity, in a, you know, potential innovation that just didn't happen, but also it's a significant driver of conflict in the world. So if we want to see a better world, it has to begin with how we think because the way we think informs the way we act in the world. It can't be any other way. And the way we act in the world will determine the quality of the world that we all inherit together. So if you want to make the biggest change in the world, it has to start with investing in the ways that we think and building our ability to respond effectively and in a resilient way to the traumas or the challenges that come before us. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think, I mean, on top of all that, what you're doing as you're solving these problems is you're bringing more minds online. 
and more creativity and more more mind power to contribute to solutions to to some of our pressing problems. I mean, if you look at you know South Korea, China, and, and the way those countries have developed really over the past two decades, I mean, it's amazing. Now, a lot of the Asia countries have gone from aid receiving to aid giving. And right now, as we speak, over the past few years, Sub-Saharan Africa have, has the fastest growing economies in the world. You know, I think that solving, like you said, solving those underlying challenges of conflict and bringing new solutions can really bring stability to these markets. I do want to dive into Live Safe as well, because the idea from it, you said, came from your time in Bangladesh or came from your time in emerging markets. So that's an interesting concept because most of the conversations we have in the show are ideas that were taken from the West or taken from the U.S., you know, taken to Africa or emerging market, replicated there, right? But I don't know that I've necessarily heard the, the opposite, right? So I'd love to, love to dive into that. So LiveSafe was an incredible collaboration and founding between a couple of different founders. And so we all brought our unique perspectives to the table. On one hand, you had myself, who was living in Bangladesh, working on a U.S. government project at the time, just seeing the lack of access to public safety when you needed it, right? It wasn't one of those places where you could pick up the phone and uh, dial 911 and expect somebody to show up right away. And so it made you very attuned to the need to leverage your social networks to keep yourself safe in communities where you couldn't rely on traditional models to show up for you to get you out of a jam if you were ever in one. And that was coupled with, of course, the experience of another co-founder, Christina Anderson, who was shot three times at Virginia Tech. And the experience of the college student in the United States who, you know, at that time and, and still today, you know, we would hear every couple of weeks a school shooting taking place and the need to meet a gap here. And then the founder, uh, Shyan Palavani, who was mugged outside of his house three times uh, living in Washington, D.C., three times in one month. And that's what really led to the idea uh, popping up in the early days of mobile apps. So you had someone who's gone through this extremely traumatic event of having been shot three times. Uh, and wanting to do something for her community. We had somebody in the inner cities of Washington, D.C., and you had me living uh, abroad, and uh, our three experiences combined led to the creation and the ideation behind uh, what became LiveSafe, which is now serving hundreds of communities, universities in the United States. We, we really started to tap into the, the student market there because they were the early adopters of the mobile smartphone, and so we had to meet our users where they were. If we're going to create an app, it wasn't the adults at that time. This is back in 2011 when we started this. And so we started with the university market, and then it grew into um, uh, lots of sports teams started using it, a lot of corporate organizations now, a lot of for lots of Fortune 500s uh, use this to power safety and security for their organizations. And then uh, various uh, uh, U.S. servicemen and women uh, in, in uniform um, and, and the various agencies use the platform as well to keep themselves mm. safe. Well, that's an amazing story of diverse minds, very diverse minds and experiences coming together to create something. Uh, and, and so, but you mentioned around 2011 was when you had this, you, you had the idea to introduce this into the Bangladesh market, but the mobile phone present penetration wasn't there. Is that, was that the biggest problem? Yeah, it was one of those things where even in the United States, a smartphone penetration wasn't where, you know, it was, it was very early days, right? So right. I think it was maybe 20% penetration, if even. 15 to 20%. And you're talking about a developing part of the world where certain segments of society certainly are very tech savvy. But if we wanted to really build a business, it, it, we didn't see it necessarily uh, starting off in, in outside of the United States or advanced markets. Got it. But now, like what, 
if you went back to Bangladesh now, is the is the phone penetration there to sustain a, you know an app like that? And not necessarily live safe, but just kind of this, look at the startup ecosystem there in general. Like, is the penetration there to build on? Yes, looking from the periphery of what's going on in Bangladesh, you know, most of my work took place in the refugee camps, which is very different from the integrated economy. But from the periphery, you see a lot of action taking place in the Bangladesh market, a lot of innovative action. And, you know, I, it's almost like I wouldn't even want to take LiveSafe over there. I would love to see, you know, the LiveSafe version from Bangladesh emerge, you know, because, because they're going to do it in a way that's more reflective of their community's needs. And it would be great to see somebody who's lived that experience create a solution. I guarantee you it would look different from LiveSafe. You know, if, if LiveSafe can serve that market and somebody was dying to have us out there, of course, we would go out there and we would want to explore that opportunity. But, you know, I think uh, given the very unique safety and security challenges a Bangladeshi faces, as opposed to what an American would face, you know, you would want something that's much more tailored to the to the community there. And so we're seeing a lot of really wonderful innovation take place. I think the capital markets are evolving in Bangladesh as well. You've seen great strides in the last, even in the last decades, as they uh, have an ambitious agenda to become a, a middle-income economy in the next few years, uh, over this next decade, in fact. So I think you're going to expect to see more maturization, and you're going to expect to see more entrepreneurs come up with great products. And I think we're even starting to hear of the first unicorns in the Bangladeshi market, which is really exciting to see as well. Interesting. I know. I did see, I think, Ant's financial, the Alibaba's subsidiary did invest, I think, take 40% of the largest fintech company there. Um, But Bangladesh is located next to India. Is that where it is? It's uh, it's surrounded by India on on three sides. Yeah, it's it's right in the Bay of Bengal. Hmm. Um, And it's got a location probably. Yes, important port location, uh, you know, which is the most dynamic hub of global trade right now, um, the Indian Ocean and the Pacific. It's a very exciting corridor to be a part of. But also, you have such an incredible population there. I mean, it's, I think it's, it, the country's the size of Wisconsin, but it has uh, over 160 million people living there. Wow. And uh, wow. if I'm not mistaken, you know, there's a sizable youth population. And so, uh, and it's the seventh or eighth largest language uh, spoken in the world. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunities for for that country and the youth within it to tap into global markets when you have, you know, even though you're such a small country, your cultural impact can be pretty significant if if it starts to look outward. Interesting. Wow, that's a lot of people. 120 million? Yeah. 160, 160 million. million. Plus, probably wow. more. Okay, yeah. so, and is most of that economic activity centered in like the in the in the main city or like what is it or is it pretty spread i would say the main cities are where you see the most activity but of course as we know with the proliferation of the internet which there's a lot of focus on in in bangladesh again i'm not as in the know of of the country's dynamics but i know that the government does have a strong technology agenda when it comes to uh, integrating uh, the rural parts of the country into the technological grid. And so we're seeing, for example, for example, the, the, the organization that I work with to start our facility in the Rohingya refugee camps, Jago Foundation, they have this really incredible model where they realize that they can't send their teachers out uh, always. The most experienced teachers, they don't necessarily want to live outside the capital. So they're doing this teleteaching component to their facilities where they have these beautiful facilities built out in rural communities in Bangladesh. Some of these are just gorgeous uh, to be around and they uh, invite the local community 
and the children to participate in these in these classes but what they're doing is they're piping in these teachers from the city in, in, in Dhaka and they're projecting the teachers real time and interacting real time. It's not just a video. The teachers are interacting real time with the children in the classroom and there's a facilitator in the classroom who is from the local community. So there's this beautiful dynamic where you're able to get the experience and then project through the internet in real time into the classrooms rural, in rural areas that would otherwise have never had access to this kind of quality teacher. There's another interesting insight to that story. It's that what you've done with No Limit Gen and building the solution for refugee camps in, in a nonprofit manner gave you insight into a market opportunity that you might you wouldn't have probably come across unless you were building that. That's yes. interesting. Well, specifically within the refugee community, are you seeing sp- specific startup verticals or sectors coming up where companies are, are starting to build solutions? And like, obviously, you have your solution and. I mean, I ask that from the perspective of most countries in Africa, let's say, like fintech is the sector. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's fintech right now. But like within a refugee ecosystem, like is, are there specific opportunities that you see cropping up that are, that are becoming obvious? That's a, that's a great question. So um, I think what we're seeing is with the rise of these refugee populations, I mean, I think right now we're at 75 million wow. It's the largest number of displaced people in the world. Is that focused somewhere or is that just... It's, it's all around the world. Mm-hmm. It's, in, it's in Latin America. It's in um, Europe. You know, it's in Middle East. It's in South Asia. You're seeing a lot of conflict drivers. We're seeing a lot of climate drivers for this, right? And a, a lot of it can also be uh, migration due to economic reasons. But the numbers have become the largest since World War II, which we don't always think about being at that high, but they are. And so what that's leading to is you're having these mass population groups that are on the move. And we're seeing a lot of, or at least I'm seeing from my perspective, a lot of different organizations trying to find ways to give populations on the move an opportunity to integrate into a global economy. You know, how do you do that? I mean, there's, for example, I've seen translation companies start up or companies around the world need translation support. And uh, a lot of times, if you go to a very specialized company that does this, it can be very expensive. But what if you gave that work to a, a refugee, right? What if you gave that work to a Syrian refugee who is university educated, who knows how to speak English or a European language, and you, know, you can work with them and they can give you a great quality product if they had access to the right tools to do that. And so we're seeing these um, innovative solutions come up that not only give employment, but meet a real need uh, around the world as well or other aspects of expertise that you can tap into into migrant communities that you can give employment uh, based on and also meet an organizational need. So I think we're seeing a lot of these companies pop up that are facilitating that kind of interaction in a way that we've never seen before. And so in that same way, you're able to integrate this group into the larger economy, give them opportunity and meet a need at a perhaps a, even a lower cost sometimes. Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of a lot more opportunity that's being is currently being executed on for more models like what Lambda School does where they bring on students and tuition is deferred to when they actually start making money through their salary, right? And so the concept of digital skills needs to be expanded in my mind because there's so many there are so many ways and platforms to make money online learning specific skills from Photoshop to coding, design, music, podcast production. There are so many different niches where if you develop a skill in a certain area, learn to use platforms like Upwork and Fiverr, you know, there's there's money and it can empower them to take take a hold of their own destiny, right? Right. Absolutely. And you know, 
we always say that nowadays you can start a company from your couch. You know, if you can start a company from your couch, as long as you have internet connectivity, you can start a company from a refugee camp. There's nothing stopping anyone with the connection, mobility connection or internet connection to start an innovative concept. We had some a story, I think, from Australia or an island outside Australia where these migrant communities are held where somebody tweeted out an entire book. You might have seen that online. And then he's won a number of awards for this, but he wrote a book that he did no paper, no pencil, but he had a mobile smartphone where he was. And he, you know, busted out this long book and it got international accolades. So we can do that. If you could send me that, I would love to link that in the show notes. Absolutely. That's amazing. I think the, what you said, I think the one thing that is blocking it, that is blocking people from doing it is just awareness the awareness that it can be done and the awareness of, of these platforms, how to leverage them. So some sort of curriculum on that front. Maybe, uh, maybe I'll defer that responsibility to No Limit. And, uh, Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. We, I mean, what we're finding is there's, there's such a need from caregivers on the front lines. You know, they keep asking me, give us activities that we can do with the children. You know, there's so many things you guys are doing in American schools or European schools that could be so beneficial. Or better yet, there are concepts that we could be adapting from, you know, the American psychiatric ideas that can then be melded with cultural concepts with the communities around the world that can lead to something beautiful coming out of it. For example, we know play therapy is really wonderful way to get children to come out of their bodies and come and and really um, express themselves in meaningful ways. And it can find really um, healthy ways of counteracting trauma or stress. And so there's so many wonderful dances or theatrical, cultural elements that you can meld with play therapy that takes this you know, concept that we've known to be healing and effective in the United States, Europe, and, and, and other parts of the world but it blends it with the local customs as well that allows these children to express themselves through their culture, but allowing for healing to That's take place. I think American corporate culture can use some play therapy. Oh, I think we can all use some play <laughs> therapy. <laughs> sure. Well, Samir, this has been fantastic. Is there any, anything we didn't cover? Anything you want to leave the people with? Yeah, I think, you know, this is, this is such a wonderful opportunity, and, and thank you for, for giving us the opportunity to share this story. But I just wanted to leave with one story if I may, of what's possible when we provide caregivers access to the tools to create these loving, healing environments for children. So when we first started our work in the Rohingya refugee camps, what we realized was, you know, you can't necessarily ask these children what they've gone through, right? They don't have the words to do it, and it just would be wrong to do that, have them relive that experience. And one of the ways that we see where they're at in their inside world is to put a piece of paper in front of them, give them some crayons and just let them draw out, you know, because they express themselves through that creativity. And in the early days of this conflict, imagine, you know, a million people just moved over. This genocide just took place. Hundreds of villages burned down. Thousands of people were massacred. These children witnessed all of that. And in the early days, when we gave them that piece of paper, they just drew scribbles on that piece of paper it was almost like we look at it and think, do these kids not know how to draw? Where they have they never interacted with a piece of paper or crayon before? But that was the chaos that they were reflecting from within themselves onto the piece of paper. Now, given some of the tools that the caregivers now had access to and through the trainings that we were doing online and through these digital platforms that we had created, over time, we started to see the children open up more and they started to draw, for example, what happened. So their houses on fire, dead bodies, blood, 
everywhere. I mean, the color red was almost like the shortest crayon, unfortunately, in the deck. And, you know, people are debating whether or not a genocide took place. It was almost like, I've got pictures for you. They may not be photographs, but these children have, have drawn out the atrocities on these pieces of paper. And then flash forward a year later, I was there leading exercise where I asked the children, imagine that you could be whatever you wanted to be, draw that out, express yourself, but imagine that you had no limitation, no boundaries. Imagine that these walls of this camp didn't exist. What would you be when you grew up? And immediately they took to the paper, they started drawing out all these incredible visuals. You know, one child stood up and said, you know, I want to be a pilot. Another child stood up and said, you know, I want to be Ronaldo. And he had had himself juggling a a soccer ball. And finally, a a young girl in the back of the classroom stood up and said, I want to be prime minister one day so I can right the wrongs that were done to my community. Mm, That's powerful from a kid. That's absolutely powerful. So you can imagine going from those scribbles to going to an image of prime minister. These kids have dreams, and we can unlock that by creating these conditions for them to heal. Amazing. Well, everyone tuning in right now, I would love for you to just take some time after this episode to just, I mean, think about these refugee camps. You know, what solutions, what can you think that you can introduce that can be scalable to to help the crisis, to give them a path forward? And Samir is doing just that. So thank you so much for joining us, and thank you so much for what you do. Absolutely. You can visit our platform at www.nolimitgen.org and check out the content we have. It's all open access and there for you to use.